Hey everyone, this is Cindy. Welcome to Mistresses of Murder. Today, I'm revisiting the Linda Welty case. I know we covered it early, early in our show, but this one really always ate me up a little bit. So I was having my children in Indiana, about an hour south from there, when this incident happened, Brady Pelts happened, Shannon Marie Cheryl, which I will be covering, happened. And these were big stories, so I wanted to come back to them. This is also my script writing episode, so I'm not going to hang on to it too long. I just kind of want to tell you where my head was at the time. I had a five-year-old stepson. I had one son and was pregnant with my second when this happened in Valparaiso. So let's dive in. Tuesday, February 2nd, 1987, was by all accounts a typical day for 10-year-old Linda Welty. Linda, a fourth grader, although some sources say fifth grade, had finished her school day at Crutchfield Elementary School and stepped out of the school bus in her usual stop on McClung Road in rural LaPorte, Indiana. It was 3.30, and the school bus driver, as well as some other children on the bus, watched as Linda peeked into her family's mailbox, which she did every day, before heading off the direction of her family's home at 181 West McClure Street Road, a mere 200 yards from the shores of Fish Trap Lake. Linda's family home was nestled at the end of a long, winding driveway bordered with trees. The driver drove off, and Linda, she was never seen again. And I will supply a picture so you can kind of see how the driveway was. I'll put it on social medias and on our website. We relied heavily on the 2019 four-part investigating series by ABC 57 for this episode, as well as other articles that we will link up in our show notes. In a more recent article by Jean Baxter from Medium, it stated that Linda's 12-year-old brother, William, had already arrived home a full 30 minutes before Linda was set to arrive. He, along with his stepfather, who was not his stepfather at the time, but his mother's boyfriend, Robert Egolf, was tinkering around outside in the front yard of their home installing an antenna. Nothing must have aroused their suspicion because they came at their, kept at their work and didn't question Linda's absence, even after 3.30 p.m. came and went. At the time, Linda's mom, Karen, had just started a new job in a factory in nearby Walkerton, and that day... She was relegated to working the late shift. There was no landline phone at the family home at the time, meaning that Karen was only able to check with Robert after her shift ended at 11 p.m. So Walkerton, it's not very far from there. I'd say 10, maybe 15 minutes. She connected with him through the CB radio. That was also a thing back in these times, I remember. Robert was under the impression that maybe Linda had given permission, was given permission to stay over at a friend's house for the night, and he put the question to Karen when she called him on the radio. In the ABC 57 news series, Karen recounts the moment when Robert followed up his question with a simple sentence that will ever remain scarred in her mind. She didn't come home. Upon finding this out, Karen was quick to alert authorities. She drove herself to the Port County Police Department where she promptly declared Linda missing. Police, family, and friends searched for Linda, but there was no sign that the little girl was anywhere. The bus driver who drove away on that faithful February afternoon saw nothing unusual in Linda's movements nor her surroundings. 
No suspicious people, no vehicle, just a little girl walking home after a day at school. What's more, she was so close to her house, but by all accounts, it was though she truly vanished. Days turned into weeks, and as Karen stated in an interview with WSB T22 News Channel, hope was never lost during those first days. I didn't want to think of that my baby was gone and that she was never coming home and I'll never see her again. I just kept clinging to the hope that she'll come home and we'll find her and she'll be back. I wouldn't give up. We still had that fragment of hope. According to Jen Baxter's 2022 investigative piece for Medium, the search for Linda lasted 22 days and encompassed the questioning of over 1,000 people. I remember this being on the news all the time, too. It was really crazy. What's more, roadblocks were set in place on McClung Road to filter out and question anyone who was driving through. The expansive swaths of land bordering the bus stop were searched by way of helicopter. But the hope that Karen was holding on to was crushed three weeks later, on March 17th, with a simple knock at the door. It was detectives investigating Linda's disappearance. Sit down, said one of them, and with those two words, Karen knew in her heart that her life would change forever. A mere nine miles away from the house in Laporte and nearby town of Kingsbury, a father was preparing his oat field by clearing an irrigation ditch when he spotted a decaying body of Linda Weldy. She was on the top of a railroad embankment, partially hidden between a stack of railroad ties near an abandoned railroad right-of-way located on the farmer's land. And the news article by the Chicago Tribune published in 1997 just two days after Linda's body was found, it was disclosed by the coroner at the time, Steve Worcester, that her autopsy revealed signs that she had been beaten and strangled. There was nothing in the original statement about whether or not she'd been sexually assaulted, but due to the length of time that she had most likely been deceased, three weeks, it's impossible to determine whether that has ever been ruled in or out. There was a psychologist and students from Ratford who studied a serial killer, and they believed that her body was found fully clothed, but that can't be verified anywhere else. However, there were signs that Linda did die trying to escape her attacker. She was found clutching blades of grass in her fist. And that just breaks your heart. I mean, I don't know. I would never be right. At the time that Linda's body was found in March 1987, it was reported by the Chicago Tribune that the parents of the local school children had made mentions of suspicious people in vehicles roaming around near Laporte schools. Nothing really came of these claims. As far as the investigation goes, police in Laporte got to work right away. As they retraced the steps that Linda would have taken up the driveway on that fateful day, they found no evidence that she even made it that far. What's more, they realized the driveway was long and winding, as well as tree-lined, effectively blocking the view of the bus stop, even if you were close by. This bolstered the claim that Robert Egoff and Karen's son, William, had made that they hadn't heard anything when they worked outside in the front yard that day. An auto body shop that was located across the street from Linda's home employed mechanics who were out working around the time that Linda disappeared they were interviewed by investigators, but they didn't report seeing anything unusual. In 1987, when Linda's body had just been found, the police spokesman at the time, Captain Gary Cooper, made a statement relying, relaying that there were 
no signs that Linda was taken by force and inferred that it was possible that Linda may have known her assailant and had gone with him willingly. What's more, the original police statement brought forth the idea that she might have been taken at the point where the road dips near the lake, avoiding the purple moment of action sheltered by prying eyes. This point to the person who committed the crime as being both familiar, not only with Linda, but the area as well. One could barely wrap their minds around the chasm of grief that must have befallen Linda Welly's mother, Karen, in the days following the discovery of her daughter's body. Effervescent hope made its way to stark reality. Linda was never coming back, and her killer was on the loose. When she interviewed in 2019 for ABC 57 investigative series titled Looking for Linda's Killer, Karen stated that she had two working theories about who could have taken and killed her daughter. For one, she was very keen on the idea that suspected serial killer Larry Hall was behind the heinous crime. Of Hall, she mused, he did a lot of war reenactments, and we have a civil war reenactment in the area at the time, and it's the only reason I haven't dropped him from the list is because there's a museum in Laporte, and they do civil war reenactments. Egghoff said, I'm thinking it's a possibility, but it's not 100%. The Larry Hall theory has been floated and rebuffed many times in the true crime community, both by amateurs and professional investigators alike, but all roads, when it comes to Hall, lead to the same conclusion, more or less. He's just not good for it, as they say in police parlance. In fact, the police have all dismissed Larry Hall's theory, stating that Hall embraced notoriety as opposed to committing murderous acts as part of the compulsion or fantasy like most serial killers. So he is actually only in prison for kidnapping someone. He's not in prison for murder. And supposedly he tells people, oh yeah, I did this one and that one. He just likes the attention, but there's really no proof. We pretty much vetted out Larry Hall. He's professed a lot of crimes that he did not do. This being one of them. Larry Hall likes to take credit for something he didn't do. He liked to be famous for homicides, for murders. I don't know why he did it. It's just something he wanted to do. And at the time, if there were unsolved murders in the area and he lived or traveled to it, he took credit for them, Williamson added. But Hall confessed to having killed over 39 women, but he is only sentenced for abduction, like I said, which is why he's referred to as an alleged serial killer. So Karen isn't the only person that believes Hall's responsible for Linda's death. Now, this is crazy, this story. Author Christopher Holly Martin published a book in 2010 titled Urges. In it, he details Larry Hall admitted to him that he killed Linda. However, Martin states that Hall confessed to him in a sort of coded language designed to avoid being convicted or sentenced to death. We've established a kind of code. For example, I might ask Larry about a case, and he'll give me two or three facts about it, and then he'll give me a false fact about it. That way, he doesn't contaminate it. As far as the law enforcement's concerned, a sort of two truths and a lie for convicts and murder confessions. Of Larry's confessions, police chief... Pat Cicero concedes at the eye bell that sure, Hall's M.O. could fit. He did, after all, cruise all the interstates in Indiana and Michigan looking for victims. What's more, it's noted in a criminal profile of Hall by Radford University that strangulation was one of his methods of killing. But this is all by what he says in the imaginary coded language of the guy who wrote the book so that he could make money. I don't know. It's all shady to me. His victim pool also includes, but not exclusive to, young girls. All the people he says he killed. However, Cicero states that although Hall could be considered a person of interest, the fact that the results of the ongoing investigation seem to point to other persons of culpability.
So I want to preface that Karen did marry Robert Egghoff. I'm sure I'm not saying it right, but she did marry him. So she is Karen Egghoff now. Another person that Karen suspected is a man named Eskimo. Eskimo was part of a local motorcycle game called The Sinners. You guys look them up on YouTube. They're something else. You see, Robert Egghoff went to stepfather, but only not her stepfather at the time, was contemplating joining The Sinners shortly before her murder. He had ultimately distested, however, and turned in his best when the probation period was over with the gang. This, according to Karen, given this, she proclaims Eskimo was unhappy with Robert's decision and that his anger caused him revenge by making Robert against Robert by murdering Linda. So, to me, this makes no sense. Linda's not his child. It's his girlfriend's child. And bikers, that's not the way they do things. But I'll go on. Increasingly, both Karen and Robert stated in interviews with ABC 57 that Eskimo ended up dying by drowning under mysterious circumstances. They called, they chalked this untimely dispatching as gang-related retaliation as Eskimo's crimes against Linda, citing it's against gang credo to inflict violence on children. The fact was quickly and fully refuted by reporting done by ABC 57, which found Eskimo's real name was Oliver Peck, and then he died of a heart attack in his home. He didn't drown. What's more, Al Williamson states leads surrounding the sinners were pursued, but with no avail. The sinners were around at that time. We all had different leads that led that direction. But they were looked into, but nothing substantiated them or indicated a motive. Why the sinners would want to do this to a 10-year-old girl, again, who's not related to that guy, that's just something that they wouldn't do. No one thinks, and I don't either. But I think it's weird that they're both so big on blaming this guy and saying they drowned because he did it when he didn't drown. That could be proven. These theories, I think, are thinly veiled attempts of a grieving parent to try to make sense of the unthinkable. Because, at its core, what can justify taking anyone, let alone an innocent child's life? The rationality is non-existence. It bends reality for the surviving, aggrieved family. Of the ordeal, Karen ruminated, I have given up hope of this coming to a conclusion. It's not going to bring her back. I know this, but I would like to know who did it. Was there a reason? Was it a random act? Was it an act of revenge? Her reflections make me wonder if all the utterance of someone making sense of the unsensible did her husband tell her this? I mean, where'd she get this information about Eskimo and how he was drowned because he didn't drown? I don't know. It's a weird flex, like I said, because in reality, it was pointed out very early that the police had another person in their crosswires, and that was not Larry Hall, and it was not Eskimo. The police believed that the person who abducted and killed Linda was none other than her stepfather, Robert Egoff, who at the time was her mother's boyfriend. At the time of Linda's murder, Robert Egghoff was Karen's boyfriend. He has since become her husband. Robert and his brother Mark have been the two least suspects in the case, according to the Indiana State Police. For one, statistically speaking, it's most likely that Linda would have met her demise at the hands of someone she knew, a fact that can further be championed by the apparent lack of struggle on the abduction site. These two facts have been peppered across police statements in the case. The police have always openly suspected the brothers, but they both have alibis from the day of the murder. Robert was working outside with Karen's son, William, who, you'll recall, arrived homeless 
at least a half an hour before Linda arrived from school. As for Mark, who was at the family's home that day, he was away at work, having left the property before Linda's bus was scheduled to arrive. What's more, he stated as having he is stated as having to have clocked in, which at least somewhat accounts for his presence at work during the time period. Well, not really, because you can have someone clock you in. I have actually done that back in the day, back in the 80s, and I have clocked people in. The police have stated that they possess evidence that can be traced back to Mark's car. Mark, for his part, claimed that he had been borrowing the car from his girlfriend at the time. The evidence in question, grease marks and fibers found on Linda's coat, could be traced back to the trunk of Mark's car. Mark claims he has no idea how that could be possible other than to state that maybe her and William were playing in the car at some point while he was working on it at his brother's house. They were playing in the trunk. I don't know. Karen, for her part, is having none of it. In ABC's 57 article, she maintains, I would not have married him if I had thought he had murdered Linda. I don't think so, and in my heart I don't think so, and I really don't think that my husband's brother Mark would either. At this point, he was at the house that day, yes, but he had left to go to work before the bus was scheduled to come. So I'm wondering, and I'm not saying he did, but could he have went down where they couldn't see him in the car and snatched her up? It's weird. In 2004, Linda's case was reopened, having light cold over 20 years. Police Chief Pat Cicero had been working on Linda's case ever since. He mused in the interview with ABC 57 that he had, that he was, part of the third generation of detectives working on this case. Every new cohort has to work with the same evidence and hope it yields fresh results. In 2014, all the new DNA evidence was tested, but no conclusive results have been obtained. When they were first questioned following Linda's murder, the Agoff brothers gave samples of their DNA to investigating officers, mouth swabs, skin samples, blood, and hair. What's more, they both willingly took lie detector tests, and it was stated at that time new avenues were being pursued in regards to the evidence collected. The true-type crime community is rocked with the salient sample of the effectiveness of genetic genealogy when the infamous Golden State Killer Real name, Joseph D'Angelo, was finally apprehended after four years, but using DNA evidence left at one of his crime scenes, investigators were able to work their way through his family tree until they knew who their guy was. If the guy is exclusive as the Golden State Killer can find his way behind bars at 77 years old, who's to say Linda's killer will not face justice one day? Or that, at the very least, Karen Ankoff will gain some closure. So, this is weird to me, and I do believe in genealogy, and I don't think they use it enough, and I think they should already be using it here if there's anything on her. Glaring questions remain when it comes to the kidnapping and murder. It strikes me odd, for instance, that Robert waited so long before alerting Karen that one did not come home. That is wild to me. So, at 3.30, he wasn't worried. They're still putting up an antenna, him and her son, and they wait till 11 o'clock like they don't, I don't know, they have a landline. No, they don't. They have a CV. They couldn't check. They couldn't. I mean, I'd be freaked out. That's a kid. Check with grandma. I don't know. Go to her job on lunch. I know when I worked second shift, you could come at lunch. According to Karen, Linda had gone to friends on a whim without asking permission before, but this seems pretty significant amount of time. Right, because it's 11 and it's a school night. I don't know. That is to say, if she was expected to be home at 3.30, it was 11 p.m. when she called on the CB radio. 
And she called. He wasn't waiting for her to get off work to say, hey, do you know where she is? That's weird. I mean, I get the auto body shop, you know, they say nobody saw anything, but I don't know that they would. You're not always outside. I mean, I figure guys are probably out there smoking, but if you see the same shit every day, you see the little girl leave and go up the lane, and she got snatched at that dip, I don't know, and you wouldn't know their cars necessarily. But that's, so that's weird. There seems to be a lot of surreal lack of explanation at the absence of any disturbance was witnessed by Robert William and the crew at the auto body shop. That's what I'm saying. So they didn't see anything. So it almost seems like that car would be in the drive where that dip was. The fact that the only person that collaborate Robert's story is the stepson who was 12. And if I told my 12-year-old daughter, no, it was 3.30, she wouldn't question that probably. The fact that no one saw or heard commotion is perplexing, and it makes it seem like it's someone they know. Source material indicates that when investigators were searching for Linda, the roadblocks provided intel in regards to abundance of road traffic in that stretch of road. A decent number of motorized vehicles traveled that road. Over 1,000 people were questioned, which begs a twofold question. Was she picked up by a person who's known to her? So I thought about that too, like a kid's dad or a kid's big brother. Hey, I'm going to take you over here. Your mom said it was okay or whatever. Just a girl getting picked up by a family member or a friend. But since hers was such a highly publicized disappearance at the time, wouldn't someone remember her being picked up? Yeah, I would think that too if there were a thousand people on that road. The busy nature of the road also suggests that a stranger abduction would have been really risky. And I don't think it's a stranger. As we touched on earlier, the Agall brothers willingly gave samples of their DNA when they were questioned following Linda's murder. During the ABC 57 investigative piece, they both maintained that, essentially, if the police had anything on them, they'd be in jail by now. But couldn't that be the opposite? If the police contained all their DNA samples, why aren't they able to publicly rule them out? Yeah, unless they didn't keep track of it, and now they don't have it, Robert and Mark Egghoff have never been charged for the crime, and they steadily maintain their innocence. It should be mentioned that, in reality, the theory that Linda knew her abductor is, and it not being Robert or nor Mark, could be both true. So, like I said, she could know her abductor. It could maybe not be either one of them. It could be a friend or a dad or a brother. Linda could have ventured off to a friend's house, something she often did, and was met with foul play along the way. I don't believe that. But just because she checked her mailbox and stuff, I think she would have went in the house. What's more, the lack of notice from the crew at the auto body shop could be explained by the sheer volume of noise. Absolutely. Based on the nature of the crime and the evidence, it does seem like a person who abducted and killed Linda knew exactly when and where and was the perfect time to strike. As of this recording, Linda's abduction and murder have never been solved. A clear motive for her killing has never materialized. The detectives working Linda's cold case believe that they know who killed her, but they are waiting on evidence to crystallize in order to move forward with an arrest. Fortunately, it appears the evidence collected in 1987 has been quite well preserved, and as such, hope for conviction and remains. As for Linda's mother, Karen, her despair permeates the source material of my research. She appears to give up all hope for resolution. They have said to me too many times, we're on the verge, we're on the verge. Somebody's going to be arrested tonight. Somebody's going to be arrested tomorrow. We have what we need, and it never happens. But she keeps memories of who Linda was alive. And this is where I'd like to leave us today. 
thinking about the joy and the happiness that Linda has brought to those around her. As quoted by Jean Baxter in her piece for Medium, Linda was a friendly girl who loved animals, riding her bike, spending time outside. She never missed an episode of the television show Mork and Mindy, and she delighted in the repeating one of the show's catchphrases. You wiener! Such to the amusement of her family. Karen, who stated about her daughter that Linda was happy 10-year-old. She was a riot. She was so funny. She goes on, some days are good and some days are bad. And they say with time it heals all wounds. When something like this happens to your child, it doesn't heal. Sometimes you feel a little numb. But no, it never goes away. It never heals. So our source material was The Brutal Murder of Linda Weldy by Jean Baxter. Cold Case Files, The Kidnapping and Murder of 10-Year-Old Linda Weldy by WSBT News. Region Cold Case Files, Who Killed Linda Weldy, the Laporte 10-Year-Old, was kidnapped and killed from the school bus when the school bus dropped her off by Warren Cross. The Port County Police reopened 1987's Cold Case by Stan Maddox. Girl 10 was strangled, Indiana authorities, by John O'Brien, looking for Linda's killer by Clifton French, and Larry Dwayne Hall by Brittany Bregney, Casey Firth, and Carrie Elliott. They'll include all of that on my show notes, but I want you to tell me what you think of a more scripted, more reined in. I have this lovely girl named Chloe who is doing a lot of my research and writing my scripts, and I like it a lot better. I still like to add to it, but I like that it's clear and concise and verified. So let me know what you think. And as always, I hope to see Cheyenne soon, but I'll catch you on the flip side.